Welcome in to the Atsanatables podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show today, a Wednesday edition. We're recording April 12th of 2023. I don't know why I said the year. We all know what year it is. A couple things here on the show. Um, We're going to spend the second half talking a little bit about some takeaways through six spring football practices. Uh, We've had the opportunity to watch... I believe all six of those spring practices Um, access will be going away here on the weekends because of scrimmages, but we're going to go into that. And first, before we dive into that on the the first half of the show, uh, we're going to jump into a recruiting segment because the ducks have landed their seventh verbal commitment of the 2024 football recruiting class. Also their second offensive lineman, their second in-state player, uh, and that is Trent Ferguson from West Salem High School in Salem, Oregon, six foot seven, three hundred pound prospect, the fifth best player in the state of Oregon by the twenty four seven Sports composite. I think twenty four seven Sports individually has him sixth, which is basically the same spot. Um, there's a couple things here uh, to dive into. We'll we'll first start off with just. What do we what do we think of another offensive line commit, another in-state kid? What are our thoughts on Trent Ferguson, the player? I mean, to start, this guy's got four games of playing experience. Um, and you go watch the highlights, you can see why a school like Oregon, which by the way was the first to offer last year. I mean, the guy was a basketball player growing up. We have to acknowledge he's six, seven, three hundred pounds, so very large human being. You can understand why he would have grown up playing uh, on the hard court a little bit. Uh, but transitioned to playing a little football this last year, and both I think it was Adrian Clement and Tony Tuioti were at a Sheldon High School game and watching their kids play play for the Irish, and and happened upon Trent and said, "This guy's huge, has a lot of potential." And it was like one of his first games playing the sport, and offered him shortly after. So um, there's kind of the origin of that, and I think it's notable that two offensive line coaches have now been through the recruiting process with him, gone through the due diligence of deciding if he's offerable um, or a committable prospect and have decided the answer is yes. That speaks to the upside here. Cause again, you're looking at a guy who's, I mean, like this is kind of like almost like a Philly Che on the women's basketball side where you're just such a raw prospect who just really doesn't have experience with the sport, but is so clearly so physically like gifted or has the upside there. This is like a total projection. Um, and not, not that on the offensive line, it's not that way when you're looking at high school prospects, but Usually you've got a little bit more, I guess, your, the resume has a little meat on the bones. But um, in this case, obviously, Ferguson's a, a, a relative newcomer to the sport. So, I mean, I, I was really intrigued watching the film. I mean, he, every, basically every highlight is a pancake. He's got like a three and a half minute highlight <laughs> film from four games. I mean, he probably had 15, 16 pancakes in the four games he played. Again, Oregon co- high school competition isn't the best, but six, seven, 300 pounds, clearly fit, big, strong, physical, has the basketball background. So, you know, he's got some athletic intangibles. I think a really intriguing player and in general um, you like it when the state of Oregon can provide you somebody who at least projects to be maybe a, a, a starting caliber, I would say right tackle um, sometime way down the line here. Cause this is a guy who you're going to probably get on campus and want to develop for at least a couple of years uh, before he's ready to contribute. Yeah, this is definitely not a day one starter. Um, I, I think that Trent Ferguson, his story is pretty remarkable again, like 50 pounds from his freshman to junior season. Uh, dislocated his heel joint playing basketball. So that causes basketball career to basically end 
Um, but it still looks like that he's you know doing the right thing here and getting a scholarship offer and going to Oregon, uh, you know, presumably if he signs on National Signing Day. Uh, yeah, I mean, just kind of like Eric said, just a big boy, 6'7", listed at 300 pounds, um, only four games ever playing football. So I think I read somewhere that he was uh, – was healthy around the start of football season, got into practice, and then they like threw him in there for the final four games of the year. And then that's where uh, Oregon, when Coach uh, Adrian Clem was the offensive line coach, you know, he offered him. And then uh, Alik Terry and Mike Cavanaugh, both those guys said, "Yeah, you no, know, we're we're going to continue to offer you. We're going to continue to make this a committable offer." Um, I watched the film. He certainly needs to get stronger. Uh, he's playing against Oregon high school competition. Those were all pancake blocks because all the guys he was blocking were like five foot eight. Um, so he could he just tripped and fell on them for the most part. But I don't want to debate that. I want to debate that. There were some small guys I, he was landing. They on were them. really small. And I, I guess that's a positive sign that shows that he can bend his knees, which is really important, and move his hips for an offensive lineman. But you see the footwork. You see the basketball background. As uh, a kid who played lacrosse as well, he moves pretty well on the open field. Um, he's just got to morph his body and get stronger and turn himself into an offensive lineman. And now that he has a, a straight path into football and no longer, uh, maybe I'll play basketball, maybe I'll play football. Now that it's straight football, he's going to be on that path to change his body into an offensive tackle. Um, other than that, I think that for an Oregon high school prospect for a six, seven, 300 pound tackle, um, I think his tape looks good. I think he does play against some of the better competition in the state, albeit, you know, it's not no Southern California competition, but, um, I do think that this guy can be a steady riser in his, in his, not his draft stock, but his prospect stock over the course of the next season and a half, maybe getting to camps in the summertime, uh, definitely, you know, playing a full, however many games high school play here, 12 game, 10 game schedule next season. Um, and of course, you know, you, you do look at his huddle tape and it is three and a half, almost four minutes long. And it's only in four games. Um, this guy definitely has potential to be there. I would like to see him more often in pass blocking. Cause I think there's only like three clips in there that are pass blocking, but it might be the offense. They kind of run like some wing T style of offense. So that's just kind of how it is. But um, I think it was a good pickup for Oregon. This is a, this is a, a class that desperately needs offensive lineman commits. Um, there's a lot of guys who could leave. There's a lot of guys who could return. Uh, it's better to be safe than sorry. Yeah, and that's where I was going to go next with this. Is Oregon has just two seniors uh, on its roster right now. Now, granted, there's going to be a couple guys who, because of the COVID year, will academically be seniors, but athletically they won't be. But Guys that have to move on for sure after this season include Junior Angelau and Stephen Jones. Um, there could be others that go pro. There could be others that leave. But the reality is Oregon, this is like the perfect time to bring in a player like this, in my opinion, where you've got depth, you've got talent, and there isn't this immediate need for a player like Trent Ferguson to jump into the fold and play right away. You've got the time to kind of mold him and develop him for a year or two. And if he shows up in June, 2024 and is really good and is ready to play even better, but you, you don't need to expect him to play. Now you can't have a class made up of all of those types of players, no doubt. But if right. you're going to take a flyer on one or two guys, this feels like one of those guys that you would want to do it. Really good basketball player, really athletic. I mean, it feels like, it sounds like, 
an injury and his body just got too big for the sport that he was playing. Um, you know, we, we hear that all the time. I think in Fale Dante was like a goalie growing up uh, and he just got too big. You, you can't be six foot 11 and play soccer. Um, this feels kind of similar. I'm not going to say that Ferguson's going to show up and just be this dominant left tackle, you know, in year two, but there's traits here that you like, and there's traits here that you can say we can maybe mold this into something special if we give him a year or two in a collegiate weight room, a collegiate training program, and collegiate coaching. I'll be curious to see what he looks like um, next fall or this coming fall when he plays as a senior. Now, it's also interesting that maybe on the, the negative side here, um, Fox Crater, their highest rated offensive lineman. I, they're going to have to do the Lord's work to uh, keep him committed to Oregon. He, he's been to Oklahoma. He's been to Georgia. I think he's going to A&M. Um, right. This is a commit that's really skyrocketed up the depth chart for a lot of programs when they're, when they're looking at offensive linemen. And maybe this is just a preemptive move. Hey, we think uh, Ferguson is going to be a dude and is going to have a wide range of, of, Big time Pac-12 schools after him in the fall. We can get him now before that happens because Fox Crater might might be someone that you know we're going to have to work really hard to keep. Yeah, that's an interesting kind of subplot, I guess. To this is is what does this mean for the O line position group? Because as you said, Matt, and I think correctly, like this is a project who's not going to scare off other offensive linemen, but it could be reactive to the possibility of Crater looking around. And then there's definitely rumors of that. And we've, I know we've kind of heard that from some people in the recruiting industry that like, I'm not sure Oregon is in a very good spot, even though he's committed there, which is the weird part of recruiting where it's like, Oregon might not even be leading for a kid that's technically verbally committed. Um, but we'll see what happens with that. And there's obviously time. He's a pseudo in-state kid right over the border in Vancouver, Washington. Um, certainly opportunity to continue to recruit him, even if he does open up his recruitment and, and look around. It'll be interesting to see what kind of plays out there. But I think the O-line class as a whole is interesting because Oregon also, I don't know how much we want to open this up to talk about other recruits, but we know Brandon Baker, the top-rated offensive tackle, I think in the entire country right now, is a player with some real, real Oregon ties. His brother played at Oregon. Uh, he's been on the record several times saying he's very high on the Ducks. Um, you know, I don't think he and Crox Crater are, again, competing necessarily for a spot. But you do wonder how many offensive tackles do you want to take in this class? And I guess the other question is, is, is do we do we think Trent Ferguson is offensive tackle all the way? Could he slide inside? I probably think he's a right tackle better than most. Probably that's where I would project him. But maybe the staff likes him a couple different spots. Maybe they see more versatility than, than maybe we see uh, kind of first watch. But uh, no, I, I, I think the, the O-line class is off to a nice start now. And Elite Terry, I think we should note, good for him. Not that many months on the job to already have landed one commitment and contained another. Um, but now it's going to be a matter of, okay, well, how does this build together? How many do they take this class? Matt, as Matt said, kind of a small, outgoing senior class that doesn't preclude you from taking four or five offensive linemen if you think their player is valuable. But it'll be interesting now to see kind of how Oregon progresses with with two commitments in hand, but clearly one of them I think were, were is, is maybe shaky right now. Keeping Crater would be huge. Um, you know, we talk about this every time that Oregon lands a commitment on the West Coast, how distance is going to be an issue, or on the East Coast, excuse me. Uh, Oregon has now landed a commitment on the West Coast. Uh, I 
I think distance is going to be an issue with those other programs across the country, like Georgia, like LSU, uh, and like Oklahoma. Um, these are constant problems that Oregon faces. Uh, I believe they happen for other programs as well. Uh, it's still very early in the recruitment. I losing Adrian Clem was a huge blow to Crater and his his recruitment from Oregon. Um, I think Alik Terry and Mike or, yeah, Mike Cavanaugh are going to be two guys who are constantly talking to him. They're constantly going to be trying if they – I mean, I'm sure they are already – um, trying to get him on campus as many times as possible. It's not that far of a drive. Um, he's already unofficially visited Georgia and LSU and Oklahoma, so I feel like he could you know, make time to come down to Oregon when it's a significantly closer distance again. Um, but, yeah, landing landing Ferguson, I don't know if that's necessarily like a backup plan or if that's just, uh, hey, in case we lose this guy type of deal. I think that Oregon's going to be on much higher overall recruits coming in like on from the offensive tackle and offensive line perspective where – if they lose Crater, they have a guy who's similar, kind of like the the Baker situation. Um, I just, I truly think that that Ferguson is is a project guy. He's somebody who's going to be one of the lowest rated players in their class right now. Uh, he could certainly move up, but uh, on paper right now, he's probably going to be one of the lower rated guys in their class. Um, he's going to be a project guy, similar to like what um, J.R. Moola was for this last year's class from modern day just a big dude this is a guy that a mario cristobal type would attract because he's six foot seven 300 pounds he's a moldable body he's athletic uh, i i think he's just a, he's going to be a project guy but uh you know if it works out for oregon that's going to be great but um i i think that they'll be just fine on the offensive line side of things i think elite terry is a good recruiter uh, i think they have the coaching behind him with with terry and with kavanaugh behind him to uh to be ideal for any offensive line recruit all right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll dive into some talk along the actual team on the field right now, spring football through six days. All right, welcome back to the Yachts and Audible's podcast. Um, Oregon's had six spring football practices. Uh, one of the three of us have been at practice and the – all the practices and all the interviews. Um, we've had various groups here and there not make it. Um, but I think we've all had different perspectives of what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've spoken with with interviews. Um, we've spoken with Dan Lanning three times. We've got an opportunity to speak with Tosh Lupoy for the first time since August. Uh, we got to speak with offensive coordinator, new offensive coordinator, Will Stein, for the first time ever. Uh, and then we've also gotten – an opportunity to speak with uh, co-OC Junior Adams for the first time since August of last year. Um, Drew Maringer will speak with us on Saturday, and I want to say there's a defensive coach uh, that we will be speaking with on Thursday. Um, we've had a wide range of, of players, Bo Nix being one of them, um, Jeffrey Bossa being another, Evan, uh, Evan Williams, um, being you know another guy, a newcomer that we've we've spoken with, and what what has stood out here? I, I, there's a wide range of topics that we want to go to. I mean, do we want me to, to to kick it off? Yeah, I thought yours was I thought yours was kind of the big overarching offensive thing, yep. which I thought was a good starting point. So I came away really surprised, really impressed with our conversation with Will Stein. Hey, first of all, he made it a point to shake everyone's hand before the interview started and then shook all our hands after the interview was, 
was concluded. Uh, you don't often see that. Um, it felt like he enjoyed just being there talking ball, but also um, asked us I, our name. Also asked our names and introduced himself, which was nice. Yeah. So welcome, Will. Welcome, Will. Um, I was really impressed with him coming in. And basically, someone asked him, "Hey, like, what what are your thoughts on just what the offense will look like uh, in 2023? How are you making your own spin on this?" And I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically came out and said that the offense was really good last year. And you have to acknowledge and you have to give credit to the former offensive coordinator, Kenny Dillingham, who's now the head coach at ASU, for the work that he did, uh, for the verbiage that they did, um, and the communication and the process that they had. And he basically said, like, I would be dumb to come in and basically change everything, over overchange everything overhaul every part of the offense. Um, they're maybe going to have a couple different verbiage changes here. They're maybe going to make a couple minor tweaks here and there. Um, but as Junior Adams said, like the offense is basically the same as it was the previous year. I don't know how much that factors in because it's Bo Nix being a quarterback and he's comfortable there. Um, I don't know how much of that's because the offense that Will Stein ran at U UTSA is very similar to what Kenny Dillingham brought over um it probably is some combination but yeah. i was pretty impressed to hear that like a, a another coach is willing to step in and say this isn't exactly what i did but we're not going to change much of this because it was so good and b like he also hammered home it, like schemes overrated it's it's about players if you have good players you know plays are all the same you're, you're going to be good and it feels kind of like the 2023 offense will be very similar to what we saw in 2022, which is a very good thing because they were really good. I think that's the big takeaway from spring so far, which is why I wanted you to start, which is it does sound like, and again, we've seen very little of this offense in, in person. I would say basically none, but I think it, it, it was encouraging and notable to hear that he's taking a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of mentality of like Oregon was really good offensively. And I was also, Matt, to your point, like just kind of, my ears perked up a little bit when he acknowledged, like, I think he even said, like, it's important to, to uh, you know, acknowledge or, 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 or at least establish that, like, the previous staff did really good things here. And, like, we are going to continue to do a lot of the really good things that worked and some of the things that maybe didn't work we'll, 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 we'll tinker with. But, yeah, I mean, I thought he, he made it very clear that this offense will look, I think it was even his words, will look similar to the, the 2022 Oregon offense. And then Junior Adams yesterday was asked by, one of the reporters about like what is it, you know what kind of differences in this scheme um, will the receivers like are there any different roles or, or anything they're having to work on he was like it's basically the same offense you know um, you know it, it, I think he kind of caught himself initially saying it is the same offense and said there are you know some alterations but yeah I think you can expect this to look pretty darn similar to last year and I think um, another element of that is is Bo is going to continue to have that pre-snap autonomy that was something he was asked about and we, we wrote a story on duck territory you can go look at there's a lot of the content of the things we're talking about right now that are you can find written content over on the site um if you want to go find those maybe we can provide some links in the in the story if, you, if you're looking for those but yeah yeah that another added component is that yeah bo will continue to before the snap look up kind of survey see what he sees and, and, and decide if the call that has been made is the right one if it's not we'll get him into a different look um which was again is one of the things he said that was he thought a big part of why they were so special last year. So I think from an offensive perspective, even with a coordinator change, there should be a lot of continuity here um, in terms of at least how the offense looks and the way it operates. And now it's a matter of 
kind of to Matt's point, what are the players able to do in this system? This is a that certainly feels like a system where, um, you know, the goal is very, very clear. It's been the same thing that, that Kenny said last year, get the ball to the playmakers in space and let them go. Um, you know, Kenny's or Will's line was plays are over highly overrated, which is uh, one that stands out um, certainly from an offensive coordinator. But it's it's clear that this is going to feel and look pretty similar to last year, which I think, as Matt said, is is not a bad thing. And then you wonder going forward in future years when some of the roster turns over, um, you know, how much will will insert some some new things because we do have to acknowledge will even said like he's been around a lot of different systems and he said he's coached within seven different ones. He has a lot of things to to pull back for or to to pull from. Uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of how this changes in future years. But at least now it does feel like it's going to be very similar to what we saw a year ago. And it should be. Um, if you watched UTSA's highlights from last year, you'd you'd see a lot of similar looking stuff. It's just about getting getting guys balls in space. And you, I don't know if if we want to go through the transcription of both Kenny and Will Stein. Um, Kenny was a little bit more forward about what exactly Oregon was trying to do, talking about wanting to run 80 to 90 plays a game, things like that. Will Stein didn't bring that up, um, but he it's clear that he wants to play at a faster pace. It's clear that he's a confident guy in his offense, and he should be. Um, I think all offensive coordinators are, are confident, maybe sometimes overconfident, but it seemed like Will was a very confident guy in what his offense can do, and you look at what UTSA did last season, and, uh, yeah, you, you understand why. Um yeah, I think it's I think it's really important that that Stein just comes out and says that the types of players that Oregon has has had in the last couple of seasons and this season specifically, like those are the guys that need to get the ball in space and just go do their thing. Um, that's all you really want from an offensive coordinator. Uh, don't don't screw it up. Uh, this is, is very it's a very similar offense because that offense works and that offense really like it really works in college football. It has for a dozen years now. Um, so if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that's kind of the, that was the main takeaway for me from Stein, just from uh, watching the interview and then rereading it through the transcript. Um, he knows that this works and he's going to stick to it. And if it worked at UTSA um, with, le- I'm going to use air quotes here, lesser caliber players than what Oregon has, uh, I think it should work at Oregon. And I would be very surprised if it doesn't. I also thought it was interesting that he came out and said that they're not going to run the quarterback, you know, all over the place. He said it's clearly got its advantages, um, but and they want their quarterbacks to be mobile and creative in the pocket with situational awareness. But he's like, we're not going to run the, we're not going to run Bo multiple times uh, into a loaded box just to do it. It feels like, and that's exactly what Oregon was like last season. They they had some designed runs. For Bo, but most of the time, when it was a run that wasn't the, with the play starting inside the ten yard line or a fourth and one situation, a lot of his runs were basically improvisions, uh, and, and that's kind of improvisions. Great work, good, good job. Uh, improvise. He was improvising there. Um, that's what we want to see, right? Like we don't want to see wishbone or you know a bunch <laughs> of qb option type stuff with with Bo and because he's he's had injuries history yeah and and will even said i think one of the last lines in the quote you were reading off there was was talking about how if if Bo replicated or duplicated last year's running production that would be like spot on that that's kind of the goal is if they can get to 500 yards rushing and i don't know he had 14 touchdowns last year I don't know, he didn't really reference that but if you get to 500 yards rushing you feel really good about that from from your quarterback um are we ready to move on to, to my takeaway? All right. 
Um, I, I, I admittedly missed the first couple of days of, of spring coming back. Um, had some stuff going on with my family, so I took some time off. Appreciate these guys being generous and letting me do that. Um, but came back Saturday and, and obviously been reading the practice reports. And I think, and we were just talking about before the show, like what, what are real takeaways from practice? Because there's not a lot we're actually getting to see. And I think there are two position battles, if you will, that we are actually, maybe three, I guess, that we're actually able to see based on proximity and what they're doing. And that's along the offensive line. And then I guess the punting battle and the punt return battle, and maybe Jared can d- dive into more of that because he follows that stuff a little closer than me. But I just think on the offensive line, we've gotten a little better feel. We've seen them line up in various versions of the first and second team offensive line. It's 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 changed throughout the week. But I think a thing that stood out to me, and my eyes, my ears kind of, again, another time where they perked up was, was just about Marcus Harper spending quite a bit of time at center and that being a Harper versus JPJ competition. I don't know if we knew exactly who JPJ would be competing with or, or whatnot. I don't think we anticipated he would just be handed the job because he's not the incumbent um, and he doesn't himself have any starting experience playing at, at, at center. Um, so it's, it's, it made sense to move somebody over, but yeah, so it seems like it's, it's JPJ and Harper at center. And I think every other position out there right now feels like there's a clear leader with the exception of left guard. Um, left tackle feels like Josh Connerly. Feope is pushing him from what we've seen. I will note, maybe I'm breaking a little bit of rules, but the, but the big thing I hinted at back like a, a month ago now was Feope for a period we saw was the left team, or for, sorry, the first team left tackle. And that was a surprising thing over Connerly. This was again back in March, but we've come back and it seems like Connerly, as expected, is, is the guy there. Right guard feels like it's Stephen Jones and has all throughout camp and, and right tackle a Johnny Cornelius. Like the right side feels very Jones. Cornelius will be where you end up at. Of course, there's time for that to change, but that feels like that side is pretty locked in. But left guard is pretty open right now. And I, I think it comes down to, from my perspective, just kind of watching and kind of reading tea leaves, like the loser of the JPJ Harper battle at center will compete with Angelau and Iuli at left guard and Angelau's inability to be healthy right now makes it harder to project some of this because he's not lining up in these groups. So we don't really have a great feel, but it feels like this is working towards a left guard is going to be uh, kind of the, the most fought over position uh, along the offensive line. It's also possible Angelau comes back and he's working at right guard and pushing Steven Jones. Like that's an outcome you can't dismiss either. He has background at left guard and at right guard at Texas. So there's some history there. Um, but that's sort of where it feels like it's at right now. And I think the the if it would be very interesting to see, by the way, if Harper ends up winning the center battle, because that's something none of us really expected. And I think I would still lean JPJ right now. But what would that do? Like, how comfortable do you feel with JPJ at left guard? I know he played there quite a bit the last couple of years. I think the answer is I feel fine. But it's just a, I just didn't anticipate he'd be one of the guards. I would kind of always thought center. So um no, but that's sort of where we are again, six days in, uh, a lot can change, but I think you're, you're kind of looking at it going, okay, left guards, the position where, where maybe there's the most potential movement, um, along with center, because I think the right side, at least early feels as close to locked in as you can for <laughs> six days into spring. So I think the most movement's going to be at center. I don't think left guard is up for grabs. I think it's junior Aguilar. He just needs to get healthy. I, because you know, Ayuli is certainly lined up there at, at points, and so has Jackson Powers Johnson in, in years past and uh, you know last season. But I think Aguilar is, is the top guy. 
He's the biggest frame of those two guys, of the three, excuse me, when you add in Ayuli and Powers Johnson. It's kind of um, four. It's kind of four if you throw Harper in. There's a bunch of guys over there. Well, I think Harper and JPJ are just locked in for center. You don't think either of them factors in it? My point was I was saying once somebody loses the center position, no, they yeah, then no, go into the left guard competition. So I don't think anybody's locked in at center right now. I think my point is that I don't think that – there is a real competition at left guard. It's just waiting for Junior Aguilar to get healthy. It could be. It could be. Because I think that's the best offensive line combination. Um, and by the way, that was what I had projected all along would be the outcome. I'm just saying the the, J, the Harper JPJ center thing leads me to believe that it's possible one of those ends up being the the player to compete at left guard, which I think is we didn't know JPJ could possibly be in that competition, which is the new development for me. Sure. Um, yeah, I just think. I just think whenever whenever Junior Aguilar gets back, I think he's just going to be the starting left guard. Uh, and I think that JPJ and Marcus Harper are going to compete for that center position, which I think is a very interesting development on the flip side. Um, I think that Jones Cornelius, which is a fire name, I think that's, fi- <laughs> that's fine at, at right guard and right tackle. I think that's where we all kind of projected what it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only conversation was really, did, will, will George Silva provide enough of a, of a pushback to be one of the starting left tackles or right tackles? Um, and we and should I think know, that Sil- Silva's only right tackle right now. We should know. Yeah. Just, to, just, to, just to put that out there. As is, as is Cornelius. Yes. Um, those guys are both right tackles, and then Feope and Connerly Jr. are, are rotating in at left tackle. But yeah. I think that Cornelius and, and, and Connerly Jr. I think were the two tackle favorites going into the season. Um, yeah. I think Silva was a very interesting case because he was, you know, extremely highly rated as a JUCO recruit uh, and somebody who who has a physical frame to to take part in tackle uh, activities, but. Uh, I still think that this is a, a this is a single position competition. I think it's really interesting, but obviously, you know, if Junior doesn't come back from injuries, and you have a lot of question marks there, but he's close. Because of by the ex- way, he's a, he's in he's in trainers and doing mostly everything on. on yeah, he's Tuesday. been. He's so I think he's been getting li- close. He's been limited in all the all the days that we've seen him. So I wouldn't say I, he was limited yesterday. Actually, I think he ran through all the drills in full. That we, again, the, the first two we watched at least, which was a step up. For, mm-hmm. I don't know what he's doing when they get into full contact, but the fact that he was right. he was full no, go no and actually does. smashing yeah. into guys and, and, and being being a physical person out there that was a nice step up today or yesterday. It's a good start. Um, yeah, I just think that his experience and his size are going to be what sets him apart. Um, I think that if he jumps in that offensive line and if Marcus Harper or honestly if Jackson Powers Johnson is the center, that's a big offensive line. Mm-hmm. That is a big, athletic, and strong offensive line that I think Oregon really needs this season after losing all that experience last year, um, or this, excuse me, this offseason. So I think it's it's going to be a fun one to watch. I think there's going to be just constant competition. And you know, looking at the offensive line in general, there's a good amount of depth. There's a good amount of depth. I think there's a couple guys where if there is injuries, you're going to feel confident about coming in off the bench. So can Are I, we can surprised? Because I agree with Jared that center is like the one spot where it feels like it's it's pretty unknown. Um, are we surprised that Harper's kind of, is it Harper making it unknown because he's so good? We, and we don't know this because like, we, we haven't seen like actual 11 on 11 or, right. you know, type type stuff yet, but I, we've seen Harper get a lot of like the first rep at center um, this spring so far jpj's been in there uh, has dave ayuli been in there as well he, i want to say yes he, he's been left guard though from what i've seen right um 
that that was it's i guess it was just surprising i like i figured jpj would be the number one guy and it wasn't really going to be a question and now harper's kind of pushed his way in there well we knew harper i was what i was going to say that we knew harper was going to be the wild card probably in all of this we just didn't know mm -hmm. where right because i right. think go, going into spring i would have said the position to focus on was was left guard which is kind of where i still think it ultimately ends up being after center but and the reason i thought that was because i thought it would be an angle out harper battle and i had jpj kind of like just written in in pen at center just i just figured that was what it was going to be because we didn't as i said earlier know who the competition would be i thought also this is kind of a question i wanted to have i thought it was kind of notable that like harper was the first i believe and you guys can correct me if i'm wrong because i did miss a couple of days but i think he was the first offensive lineman made available to speak is that right yes it's mm -hmm. kind of interesting. I mean, I don't think it matters too much, but like this, this is a guy who clearly the, the staff values a lot and, and wanted to give him an opportunity to be the first representative out there. Um, you know, that that might be that might mean something. It might mean absolutely nothing. But yeah, no, I mean, the, the center position, again, I think that leads to whatever the left guard position battle is, because once you have a pretty clear picture, and I don't think that's going to happen probably until fall, then you can figure out kind of where the chips will fall at, at left guard. And, and ultimately, I still think it's JPJ, but I have really no idea um and, and we'll just kind of have to go from there um jared do you want to finish up talking about some of the special team stuff and kind of where those position battles are sure yeah i was going to say one more thing about the offensive line um, i'm not at all surprised to see or hear or whatever that marcus harper is making things difficult for this coaching staff um he was a very integral part of the offensive line last season mm -hmm. he was very good for a long long stretch of time um you know, at the at but at the end of the day, Stephen Jones, once he was healthy to come back, they put him back in that offensive line. Um, but Harper's no slouch. He's certainly going to make any position battle that he's in, if it's at tackle or guard or safety or whatever he's he's playing on that day, he's going to make it difficult. And um, I think he's a great player, and I think that's why he was one of the first offensive line um, members made available to the media. That and mostly because Ryan Walk and Alex Forsyth are no longer on the team because those two guys would be Still out way weird. before them. But that, um, that was the thing is like I was just trying to figure out who's the new O line spokesperson. I figured it'd be JP. It's Harper. It's yeah. Harper. Yeah, it was. It's definitely but. not going to be Feope or uh, I, I, like I wish it was, there was there was still a big Saul out there, but he is uh, no longer with the team. But Connolly, yeah, by the way, making his interview debut on Thursday. I am told. Interesting. I am. Uh, that should be fun. Yeah. Every time I see George, I don't know why this, but when Jared mentioned Big Sala, every time I see George Silva, he reminds me body type wise of Big Sala all the time. <laughs> I look at him like, wow, I do just, maybe it's because it's the same number. Um, That's part of it. Probably. <laughs> but they look very similar. I don't know. Just a random thought in my head. L length and size wise, there are certainly similarities there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, um, special team stuff. Not a, not the most exciting segment we're going to have on this podcast, but one that needs to be done and one that is very important because we all watched Oregon last season, the Oregon State game specifically, the final play of Alex Bales's career. Um, I know we finally we talked about that yesterday. That's really sad. That was the end of his college playing career. Is, is that yeah. is that terrible play? Eesh. Yeah. Um, Hopefully, Oregon does not have those next season, and that's because Ross James and Luke Dunn are engaged in a punting battle at practice. Um, I would I would give the upper hand to Luke Dunn to start the season or to start spring camp, excuse me. Uh, yesterday, was that yesterday? Yeah, yeah yesterday. Yes. Good Lord. 
Um, yesterday, they they practiced punts inside the 50-yard line to try to get you know coffin corners or get it to stop inside the 10. Uh, and I thought it was the most competitive day of practice that they have had so far between James and uh, Luke Dunn. Um, again, I think Dunn has been more consistent during these these periods. Again, we're only watching them kick five to seven balls. So it's really not a huge sample size. We don't see how they do during pressure kicks. We've had no pressure kick scenario, which yep. again, I think is a bunch of hoopla, but you know, that that's just me. Dan, you can cite me on that. I think it's a bunch of hoopla, these pressure kicks and pressure punts. Um, or, or, and, and we haven't seen them punt with a live rush, which is something that will no, be. No, no live rush, no anything like that. Yeah, but that'll be important. I, yeah, it's, but I think Dunn has just been more consistent. Um, I think James probably has the longest punt of the spring. Uh, he absolutely boomed one a couple days ago. But Dunn has been consistently putting it in between the the, the hashes, hashes and the numbers. Um, so I think that's then Dan has been on record to saying like that he's looking for consistency, he's looking for accuracy because that helps your special teams unit. If you're supposed to punt it to the left side of the field, and everybody on the special teams unit is charging towards that left side of the field, and the punt goes to the right side of the field. You're uh you're in a you're in a you're in a heap of trouble there. Um, Dunn has also he's also shown off the banana kick or the banana punt, however you would like to say it, um, where you know it, it juts out like a banana and then curves back in. It's kind of like if you're slicing a ball or drawing the ball for those golf <coughs> aficionados that are listening to us. Um, it's incredible. It's just one of the greatest things I've ever seen. Uh, it turned Troy Franklin around like three times for him to try to find the ball, and he still missed it. So. I'm excited to see those again. I'm excited to see if he pulls one off during a game. Um, I think that's important. I, I think that's the, the the punting competition is still up for grabs. I would say, yeah. But I would give Luke Dunn the strong, uh, yeah, I would give him a strong positive sign that he he could be the punter for next season going into it. Uh, in terms of the punt returners, the guys who are recording the kicks, or excuse me, returning the kicks, it's the same four dudes just in a different order every every day. Uh, it's Troy Franklin, Chris Hudson, Cole Martin, and Tez Johnson. So one of those one of those guys is going to go first. The other ones are going to go behind him. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there's a hierarchy yet. Uh, I think it's interesting that Troy Franklin is in that mix and Tez Johnson because those are both very integral parts of the offense. Uh, we've uh, this is kind of always a discussion between people of do we want guys who are really important on our offense returning punts and kicks because that's a more likelihood that they'll get hurt. Um, I don't know. Those are just your best options. And uh, for kicking and kickoff returns, uh, kickoff returns are just all the running backs. I don't know what that's going to look like, but it's every single running back on the field is back there. And uh, Camden Lewis is still doing the thing. Uh, I haven't seen any kickers kick a field goal yet, so I don't know. Maybe they just don't plan uh, on on kicking field goals this year. Can we make a petition that if Luke Dunn does win the kickoff battle, that when he makes his punt and the team's coming off the field, that the crowd chants, Luke. Ooh, I like it. As long as it's a good one. Yes. Yeah. That, that yeah. would be like automatic requirement. But Would yes. the crowd know what a good punt is? Yeah, they would know what a good punt is because they've seen so many bad ones that they would just be like anything <laughs> that well, goes in the right line 30 yards down the field is like, that was great. Well, that's, I mean... Uh, just yeah. to, to add to Matt's point, if it, it's it, it, we think his name is Dunn, if his name was Dune, that would be an even better crowd. That would be better, yeah. Crowd chant, Dune. That would be that could be good too. Um, mm-hmm. I think I just watched that movie for the second time this week. We're just randoms, randoms, random, random, random right, comment. It's a good book. Good, it's good. Um, 
the other thought, thing that I thought was sort of interesting, and I know as as Jared said, I don't think there's like a clear hierarchy at all at, at punt return. But on Saturday when I was watching it, it was Hudson Tez rotating for like the first three, and then they brought Troy and Cole Martin in. Um, it is interesting that everything comes seems to come back to Tez versus Chris in competition right now in terms of that receiver at punt return. Um, we've had a couple people really commend Chris for how he's handled things, Bo and and Junior. I don't know if Will Stein was asked specifically about it, um, but just that he's that he's continued to to work really hard. We know that we know people don't think we like Chris Hudson, so we're trying. I want to try to give Chris Hudson some some flowers right now because there have been some really positive things said about him this week. Um, you know, in terms of how he's handled the competition, and 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 frankly, Junior was really complimentary of how he's how he's played this spring um, so far as well. So we'll we'll see. I think I think it, it's really interesting the parallels, but just like Tez Chris feels like almost like the biggest competition of camp right now, uh, whether it be at slot or whether it be at punt return. It just seems like those two are competing at, at, at a variety of different places on the field. Would be odd if one of the coaching uh, members of the coaching staff were negative about him. It'd be interesting at this point of spring. Oh, so you don't, you don't buy them. You don't buy the, uh, the positive. I mean, has anybody said anything negative yet? No, but you could also you also see when somebody's muted in terms of the the compliments, right? Like we know oh, yeah. we, we know what it looks like when Dan is asked about somebody and kind of doesn't have a lot of nice things to say that you can kind of read between the lines that maybe there's not a lot of nice things to say. Uh, I mean, Junior pointed to specific plays that Chris had made that were impressive in that day. So like I like it, it, at at, the, at least he's on the field producing at a way that the staff is is pleased with. I don't I don't think there's I'm not I'm not going to I don't there's no benefit for Junior to come out and give a guy flowers when he doesn't deserve any flowers because then that creates problems with dis you know with how is he representing things to media. I think we can, I would, I mean, I would it, agree with Eric. I mean, we, we can we can choose to just think that that Chris Hudson is that they don't, no one likes Chris Hudson on the team but I'm I'm just going to assume that if someone says like he's doing good that he's probably not sucking. That'd be nice. That'd be nice. We can then trust Junior. Be nice to trust him with it. <laughs> I, I, I think it was interesting. I mean, I asked Junior like, "How has Chris handled the competition?" And it was like a straightaway, right away, strong answer. Like he, one thing he knows and we know best about Chris is he's all in on competition. Um, yeah. you know, but at the same time, like, even I think yesterday. Greg Biggins had a story that, you know, Oregon is still in the thick of it, maybe the favorite for Gary Bryant Jr., another guy that plays the same position. So while they're being complimentary of Chris Hudson, they've already added Tez. They're going to potentially add another guy that plays the same position. There's clearly something there that they want more of. And I think, I think the answer is it's both. Like they want more out of Chris. They want more out of that position. And, you know, they have good things to say about Chris, though. Which are mm -hmm. probably true. I, I I assume the good things are true. I also assume that the, the bad things are true, and we've witnessed some of the bad things on the field, and witnessed some of the probably distracting things in media scrums. So I understand why he's a polarizing figure. But at this point, like it seems like he's involved in some, you know, in, in a big competition. And like, hey, like I'm not ready to write write him off. I also wouldn't be like stunned if we get to June and it's like he's playing at a different school. So, um, right. but he's definitely one of the more polarizing players on this roster, no question. And I know. I mean, can, can, can we can we can we jokingly answer the question? Every there's like one guy who every 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 podcast asks us why we hate Chris Hudson. The answer is I don't hate Chris Hudson at all. And if like if you follow it, it's just like I, they the, the staff is telling you that they want to improve the position. They went out and added a player 
to add competition. Now, Chris could absolutely come out and win that competition, and Tez could could play 30 snaps all season. I find that highly, highly unlikely, but it's possible Chris has an awesome season. He's great. I'll eat, I'll, we'll eat our words in terms of doubting him later, but like we also just have to – like we're not making this up out of thin air in terms of like what's happened from a, you know, a player perspective. Um, you know, but at the same time, like I said earlier, I wanted to make sure we, we, you know, if the, if the staff's going to give him flowers, if Bo's going to give him flowers for, for being somebody who's impressed him with how he's competed in practice, like I wanted to make sure to at least acknowledge that. But yeah, like, I think it's reasonable to, to question why they added Tess Johnson. I don't think it's just as simple as he's Bo's brother. I think the fact that they wanted to improve there and they didn't get incredible production and sometimes inconsistent production there also lends itself to the, the explanation why. So we've probably talked too much on Chris Hudson on this podcast, considering we've watched like very little of him do anything besides field punts yeah. and like run through, uh, you know, concepts, run through some perimeter receiving drills. But like, I don't know. I just feel like he's somebody we hear a lot about a lot. And I don't know. I wanted to kind of say my piece. Well, it goes yeah, to but- what Jared was saying about the returners, like Franklin's back there returning punts and not quite sure if, if Oregon would rather have, your star guy back there fielding punts or not, but Gary Bryant would allow, he's mentioned it. Like Oregon wants him to be the guy returning punts, which would open the door for Chris to be more of a receiver and less chance that, you know, he gets hurt. So they, they could find yeah. roles for all of them. Yeah. It would be nice you're... to watch. I was going to say, it would be nice to watch any offense. That'd be cool. We'd love yes. that. Yeah. There is really scrimmage. Nice. Uh, on Saturday, and unfortunately, I missed nope. the end to get in to watch. Uh, kids sports, ah. 200 kids get to go watch practice, yeah. and then I what missed the email. And so when I tried to sign up my kid for my work purposes only, uh, no shame in saying that, um, I missed. Check, check your email, time. Matt. Check the emails. <laughs> Come on. It went by pretty fast, like less than an hour. It was all oh, going. Wow. Oh, that shows the interest, by the way. Less than an hour, the, all the spots were taken, so. Yes, 100%. All right. Uh, I think that's going to do it for us here on the Ots and Audibles podcast. Um, thank you for listening to the show. We'll be back Friday morning with another edition. And until then, you've been listening to the Ots and Audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks. <clears throat> Peace. <laughs>